Um, I'm going to start by sharing with you um, a nightmare, a recurring nightmare I had as a child. I was um, a real theater kid, so I did like plays pretty much from like age seven all through high school into college. Um, and so I would have this dream that it was opening night and I was in costume, the lights were like getting ready for the, the show to start, the curtain opens, I'm on the stage, and in that moment I realized I have no idea what any of my lines are. Not a single one, right? And then that dream kind of evolved. By the time I was in college, it was often something like a final exam. I show up, I pull out all of my pencils, I'm ready to go, and I realize, oh, I forgot to study, right? I have had that dream in recent years where I'm here <laughs> doing this and realize, oh crap, I didn't prepare anything to say. <laughs> You're all nodding like you get that dream, right? Anyone else has had some version of that dream? Yes. I think they call it a stress dream, maybe. Um, there's a common theme, right? Something important is going to happen, and I'm not going to be prepared. I think that's like what's the core of that dream, right? And I think this resonates, I'm naming this, because I think it resonates with the season we're recognizing today. Okay, this is the first Sunday of Advent. It's a season of getting prepared. A season about recognizing that something important is coming. If you don't know, Advent comes from Adventus, which is the Latin word for coming. That's what it means. It's a season of waiting, but not really a passive waiting. It's an active preparatory waiting. But waiting for what? Despite what the chocolate advent calendars that my kids are starting today might lead you to believe, we're not talking really about waiting and preparing for Santa, right? The work of Advent isn't really about tree trimming or shopping or wrapping. What Advent recognizes is the waiting for a more pressing turn of events, a waiting for a deeper hunger to be satisfied. It's the waiting for breakthrough, the waiting for deliverance, the waiting for true Justice, they're waiting for the arrival of what the Hebrew people called Messiah, God's anointed. The one who would usher in an end to a dark, oppressive reality in a world where everyday people's reality was so clearly made difficult because of power that was entrenched in the hands of a very corrupt minority. The Messiah was the one whose arrival would demonstrate that something divine in the universe God was still with God's people and was going to put all things so clearly wrong to right. Now, I don't know about you, but I resonate with the need for this kind of Advent right now. It isn't lost on me that this year particularly, we're not just waiting to sing Silent Night and eat some Christmas cookies. A week and after Christmas, we will mark a turn to a new year. 2020, an election year in the midst of perhaps the most polarized, high-stakes political moment many of us can remember, a year that's likely to be filled with conflict, misinformation, bigotry, 
competing special interests coming at us all in a fever pitch. And it's a year that I believe many people around the planet are looking to with concern, fear, trepidation, and also longing. Longing for some sort of breakthrough. In November 2016, in the hours and days after the last presidential election results came in, I had this sinking stirring of regret. Why didn't I do more? Could I have done more? What should I have done? How had something so cataclysmic just happened and I found myself thoroughly unprepared for it? This year, as we engage this season of Advent preparation, I want to invite us here at Haven into a season of spiritual grounding for whatever the next year and beyond is going to be. My hope is this season will give us some space and intentional time to discern with the Spirit how we might be invited to participate in the coming of Messiah in our time and to prepare for that participation. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the four steps he believed were vital to any nonviolent campaign for justice. Steps he had learned from the work Gandhi had been doing in India. And Dr. King describes them this way in his letter. The four steps are the collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We're living in a time of increasing activism around the world, right? Many of us may have found ourselves participating in civic life in more active ways in the last three years than maybe ever before. Around the world today, from Hong Kong to Chile to Great Britain to Sweden to the US, people are getting engaged, showing up in the streets, resisting what they fear is the rise of strong men and the crippling of democracy in their time. But as this activism stirs, I would guess that one of the steps that King and Gandhi believed were vital to, the work that's often, to this work has often been overlooked. It's that third step, the call to self-purification. Once injustice has been identified and the channel of reasonable negotiation has been unsuccessful in righting that injustice, before escalation to direct action takes place, King said there must be a time of self-purification. What is self-purification? In Dr. King's time, it meant a period of intentional preparation before any direct action that the civil rights demonstrators working with King participated in. So before they headed into the streets, they took the time to do the internal work to prepare them for what they were facing. Demonstrators were trained in the methods of nonviolence. They practiced how they would respond to aggression in nonviolent ways, practicing, role-playing, how they'd control their natural responses to vile words and physical assaults that would come. They examined their motives to assure that they were aligned with a higher purpose, not simply a vengeful need. They fasted, they prayed, 
perhaps this is the kind of preparation we would do well to model this Advent season. Perhaps as we look to the year to come, we too could use a time of self-purification. So what might that look like for us? Living as different people in a different moment than Gandhi or Dr. King. I think our biblical stories might actually give us another set of examples that could be helpful for us as we engage this Advent season together. And as I've been thinking about this particular Advent journey I'm inviting us into this year and where, where we should start it together, I have felt led to look for inspiration in a couple of characters in our ancient texts whose story might seem like a counterintuitive choice for the first Sunday in Advent. It is not the um, lectionary text, okay? It's not the text a lot of people are looking at today. It seems counterintuitive because their story actually appears at the end of the first Christmas narrative. But as you'll see, I think these characters we're going to look at today have been part of the work of preparation for breakthrough in their time long before we meet them in the biblical narrative. And because that's true, I think they have something to teach us about engaging this journey of preparation and waiting this Advent season as we look not only to Christmas, but to the year ahead and the kind of breakthrough we long to see. So this morning, we're going to look together at an episode found in Luke 2. Um, if you're newer, you may not know, we do have some handouts around. You're welcome to use them. Uh, we're going to get into starting to look at them. If you like to fill in the blanks, there's pens in the back if you want to grab one. Um, you totally don't have to. It's just if that's helpful for you. So here's the setup for this story. Baby Jesus has already been born, okay? He's about six weeks old. According to the law, observant Jewish mothers needed to be purified 40 days after giving birth before they could be fully restored to community and to ritual observance. There was also a tradition of presenting the firstborn son in a unique way as set apart to God. So this young family goes to Jerusalem for these things to take place, to go to the temple. Part of the purification of the mother involved making a sacrifice, generally a lamb, but for families with significant financial need, the Torah made an exception. A pair of doves was acceptable, and Mary and Joseph brought the doves. And when they arrived in the temple to dedicate their newborn son, this is what took place. Okay, so picking up at Luke 2, verse 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he had revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all peoples. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. 
As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Fenwell from the tribe of Asher and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who'd been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So here in this story, we meet two special characters. Simeon and Anna. Though they only appear in these few paragraphs at the end of our nativity narratives in Luke, what I find thought-provoking today is when I consider how their stories are really about all that they've been doing for long before they encounter this young family in the temple. Right? These folks, you could say, have been living into the story of breakthrough that's at the heart of the Christmas narrative longer than anyone. Before an angel announced to Zechariah or to Mary that they would bring forth miraculous children, Simeon and Anna had been pre preparing. Before a child leaped in Elizabeth's womb or Joseph said yes to Mary's pregnancy, Anna and Simeon were active. Before shepherds or magi or radiant stars are on the scene, these elders of the faith had been at work. Their lives had been marked by decades of preparation for this moment. They've been actively living into the spirit of Advent for much of their lives. And because of that, when this moment, this moment of encounter with breakthrough comes with the coming of baby Jesus, they are prepared to know what they're looking at. Presumably, there were plenty of people in the temple in Jerusalem that day, but only two of them find this young, poor family remarkable. So what makes Simeon and Anna unique? What marked these people's decades of preparation? What kind of self-purification had they gone through? While we don't have more of their stories, I think our text gives us a few clues we can infer. So I'm going to tell you what I notice. First, they knew their history and their legacy. They knew their history and their legacy. Simeon and Anna knew what story they were a part of. They had not forgotten the words of their ancestors. Luke tells us that Simeon was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. This is not some superhero fantasy born simply reactively of desperation in a painful circumstance. It's not, man, these Romans are brutal and oppressive, and this guy Herod, who's in charge of us now, is a paranoid tyrant. Man, I wish like a superhero would come and just save us all. It's not that, right? No. The hope is very specific. It is in Messiah. It is in the word translated into Greek as the Christ. It is in what literally meant God's anointed. The hope that God would redeem God's people and this would take place with the arrival of God's deliverer. 
And this hope was rooted in tradition and sacred story. It was rooted in the faith of their ancestors and the words that Israel's prophets had spoken many centuries before. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it is said that Simeon was a translator. And he was tasked with translating the biblical texts from Hebrew to Greek. And it was through that scribal work of translation that he became deeply convicted about what the texts said, about the deliverance of Israel through the Messiah. Now, whether this story is true or not, what it is clear is that this is a man who knew his sacred texts. He was clearly well acquainted with prophets like Isaiah, who wrote these words and many others about the one who was to come. Isaiah 49, and now the Lord speaks, the one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. This is words about the Messiah. The Lord has honored me and my God has given me strength. And he says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Or maybe he was thinking about Isaiah 51. The Lord will comfort Israel again and have pity on her ruins. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, Israel, for my law will be proclaimed. My justice will become a light to the nations. My mercy and justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nations. All distant lands will look to me and wait in hope for my powerful arm. Or maybe he was thinking about Isaiah 61, which 30 years later... Jesus himself would appropriate to speak about what he was here to do. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. These are just a few of the many, many, many passages that speak to the hope that though the times be dark, and oppression be potent and overwhelming, Israel would be comforted. Israel would be redeemed. The initiation of that comfort and redemption would come with God's anointed. This is the story that Simeon and Anna are rooted in. It's the story they're hanging on to despite the odds being quite discouraging. And it isn't just the story they're hanging on to. Knowing the story isn't enough. They are also, they also seem to appreciate the role they have to play in their time. They understand their legacy. The author of Isaiah didn't just tell Israel and those who would preserve those words that, that God would do this and they could just like chill till it happened. Just hang out and someday this is going to happen. No! Centuries before Simeon and Anna were born, the prophets had named that the divine was calling people to stand watch for the movement of God that was to come. People were expected to be preparing. Isaiah 62, O Jerusalem, I have posted watchmen on your walls. They will pray 
day and night, continuously. Take no rest, all you who pray to the Lord. Give the Lord no rest until he completes his work, until he makes Jerusalem the pride of the earth. Go out through the gates, prepare the highway for my people to return, smooth out the road, pull out the boulders, raise a flag for the nations to see the Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. The prophets, whose words were recorded by the Hebrew people, were commissioning their brothers and sisters to come, to follow in their footsteps. They were commissioning them to look beyond present circumstances, to look beneath the surface at the greater things being done in their time as earthly kings came and went, as foreign powers conquered their lands, as religious leaders fought amongst themselves about whose theology was right and whose was wrong. As all that was taking place, God would be inviting people to discern something deeper and more vital than any of it the coming of a breakthrough that would turn all of those systems and structures upside down. Simeon and Anna were standing in the tradition of the watchmen. They had understood not just the story they were a part of, but their place in the story. They are among the generations of unnamed fathers and mothers of faith who have held on to the words of the prophets in the centuries of darkness between Isaiah's writings and Jesus' birth, at least five to 700 years. When many of their brothers and sisters had fallen into cynicism, apathy, fatalism, they had continued to watch, to pray, to prepare. They understood it was their legacy I think that's why they feel such satisfaction when they get to see the newborn baby. They know to participate in the work Jesus came to do 30 years later was not their role. Their generation wasn't the one to make fishers of men. It was not the one to hand out bread as Jesus fed the multitudes. That was the work for their grandkids. But they had a vital role of their own to watch and wait and prepare and cry out when they saw, as watchmen on the tower, what they could see something big was coming. Seeing the breakthrough arrive with this newborn child signaled, mission complete. The Reverend Dr. William Barber, I have a picture of him here, was born two days after the March on Washington That has been a part of his own story that he's often looked to as significant. He was born to a well-educated African-American family who were active participants in the movement. They lived in the Midwest, but his parents moved when he was very young to the South so that they could be a part of desegregating the schools in North Carolina. Barbara's father taught science in the local school. His mother worked in school administration and Barber himself was one of the first black boys in primarily white classrooms for much of his educational career. His parents were also devout Christians and his father a learned preacher who preached at churches regularly though was not a local, did not have a a congregation of his own. In 
One of Barber's earliest childhood memories was of him, his mother shouting and bursting into deep sobs, seeing the news on television. Later, he would come to understand that that was the day Dr. King was murdered. All of this is the background of Reverend Barber's story, a background that connected him not only to his history, but to what he would come to understand as his legacy, to continue the work others had started to combat racism and advance the rights of the marginalized in the United States. It was understanding that legacy that would lead him eventually to answer a call to ministry himself. It was that legacy that would propel him to immerse himself, not just in the study of theology, but of history and public policy. It was that legacy that would call him to say yes to leading the NAACP in North Carolina and in that role to begin to build what he calls a fusion movement centering the needs of the most vulnerable and pushing back on policies that would seek to further harm the poor. As gerrymandering and voter suppression and dark money took over the state house in North Carolina by politicians who are testing the waters and laying the groundwork for strategies that we've now seen rolled out nationwide. As that was happening, as Barber saw his state's leaders funded by special interest groups outside the state advancing the interests of the few over the needs of the many. Barber worked with many others from a disparate variety of groups to build a coalition movement that would bring all of these disparate groups together to resist together alongside one another policies that targeted the poor, targeted people of color, targeted immigrants and women and the LGBTQ community. It was in this work that the Moral Monday movement was born as one summer thousands and thousands of people gathered every Monday in the state capitol risking arrest to demonstrate against unjust policies they saw their state government putting forth. And in 2017, understanding this legacy led Dr. Barber to relaunch the campaign that's been, that was tragically terminated nearly 50 years before with the death of Dr. King. The initiative King was working on in his last years after the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Acts had become a law was called a National Poor People's Campaign. The, the campaign that Barber has now picked up is an embodiment of the legacy Reverend Barber's been living into his whole life. A fusion movement that brings together a diverse coalition of people with a shared belief in a moral universe that is committed to true liberty and justice for all. It's a campaign inviting people of conscience from all faiths and no faiths to join together and hold all those in government from both parties to account to enact policies that combat poverty, systemic racism, militarism and the war economy, ecological devastation. Dr. Barber, I think, is a contemporary watchman. He is watching for the breakthrough of justice. And as he waits for it, as he holds out prophetic hope for it, his waiting is active. He is preparing the way for the Lord. Like Isaiah spoke about, he's rolling away boulders. He is planting flags. 
as he writes, as he rallies, as he marches and preaches, and sometimes is arrested like king before him. He is part of preparing the way, devoting himself to be on the watch and be making the way clear for justice to come and reign. Among other things, Reverend Barber is an advocate for reclaiming the role of preaching in the public square. And many of the rallies he holds to protest, to protest policies that devastate the climate or roll back voting rights or strip the poor of their health care, he's preaching. He's tying his faith tradition to the movement for justice tradition and reminding his listeners the importance of these legacies. The book, Revive Us Again, which I highly recommend if you're interested, shares the texts of many of these sermons he's been delivering kind of in public spaces. And in one of these messages, he was addressing the challenge of keeping diverse coalitions together as well as the importance of it. And it was rooted in this understanding of history and legacy. After sharing some of where we see that in the Bible, he says this, I know what staying together does biblically, but I also know what staying together has done historically. The truth is, when you hold on to truth and justice, hope, justice never loses. I didn't say justice hasn't been fought. I didn't say justice hasn't been beat up. But justice has never lost. During slavery, it looked like justice had lost. But when Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and some Quakers and white evangelicals and Henry David Thoreau got together, they formed a fusion movement that brought about abolition. Women didn't have the right to vote, but when former slave Sojourner Truth and Quaker Lucretia Mott got together, they won the right to vote. Plessy versus Ferguson looked like it would carry the day, but when Thurgood Marshall got white lawyers and black lawyers and Jewish lawyers together, an all-white Supreme Court with one member who had been part of the KKK voted unanimously to tear down separate but equal. It looked like Jim Crow had been beaten down, had beaten down justice and was going to win, but when Rosa Parks got together with Martin King and Bayard Rustin and all the other people, white and black, they tore down the system of Jim Crow. Amen? Friends, this isn't just Barber's history. It's not just his legacy. We, too, have a history behind us. A history that at times has been filled with heroes who've been part of the fight for greater freedom and justice, for release for the captives, for good news for the poor, embodying the work of Messiah. Amen? People like those that William Barber named, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Lucretia Mott, Dr. King, we honor them, we are right to do so, but their time is done. They have done their part. As Barber says, Dr. King is not getting out of the grave. It's our time now. If we want to honor their legacy, if we are truly grateful for the struggles they endured, then we have to commit to our own. We can't just extol their courage and then wring our hands that many of the freedoms they fought for are under threat today. If we would honor the work, we have to give ourselves in our own time to the same kind of resistance on behalf of justice that they were committed to. And that brings me to the second thing that I notice about Simeon and Anna and how they embodied this legacy. Anna and Simeon engaged in consistent 
intentional spiritual practices. They, they engaged in consistent, intentional spiritual practices. Clearly, as we've mentioned before, these two have been regularly studying the Torah. That's part of it, right? They've regularly studied the writings of the prophets. But that doesn't seem to be the only practice Luke alludes to. We're told that Anna has spent most of her life, likely since she was a young teenager, so probably like around 60 years, which was a long time, particularly back then, at the temple, praying and fasting. She has spent most of her life devoted to practices that have shaped her way of living in the world, her way of relating to others, her understanding of what it means to be human, to live in conflicting times. She's been consistently, intentionally engaged. And that seems to have left a mark. That seems to have shaped her in a powerful way. Now, clearly, most of us aren't going to spend our entire lives as adults fasting and praying. I don't think that's most of our calls. But we certainly can take inspiration from her and her work to consider how we cultivate our own rhythms, whatever they may be, of consistent, intentional spiritual practice that might shape us in a similar way, particularly in these seasons of self-purification we need to undergo. There's an internal work that we need in order to honor that legacy we have been given. As we do this, I think we may also find that cultivating these spiritual practices can open us up in a way that seems for Anna and Simeon to be the third significant thing I notice about them. Simeon and Anna are sensitive to God's spirit. They were sensitive to God's spirit. These two aren't just acting out of head knowledge. They're not just acting out of religious observance. Nowhere in the books that they had read or the prayers that they had learned were they given an exact description, were they given a day or a time, who this holy family would be, when they would come to Jerusalem. No, for that, they had to discern the movement and the communication of the divine. They had to be tapped into something. They had to be spiritually responsive. The author, Luke, makes a point to highlight the role of the Holy Spirit in Simeon's whole account. He tells us it was the Holy Spirit who'd given Simeon divine revelation about seeing the Messiah before death. He tells us it was the Spirit that led Simeon to the temple that day. The Spirit helped Simeon identify Jesus and his family. And the Holy Spirit seemed to give Simeon words to say, words that were connected to the prophets and old and seemed to speak in their same power, with their same resonance, but which carried new particular messages for this couple about what was coming in their day, how the divine purposes would come to pass in the here and now, how their child would be a revealer of hearts. Often those who fight for justice and taking down those who do not want to let go of power, they do reveal our hearts. And Simeon would name how costly 
that work can be to those who love the people who do it. In this case, particularly Jesus' mother Mary. Anna also has a unique sensitivity to the spirit. That's likely why Luke refers to her as a prophet. And with that sensitivity, she's drawn to this family and to extolling what is going on to everyone she meets. The sensitivity they had, I think, is vital in this moment we find ourselves in. There are so many calls to engage right now. It can be overwhelming, right? We can feel stirred to action, but have no idea what cause to actually put our energy into, which events to prioritize. The news cycle gives us new things to fuel our outrage every day. And with the onslaught, we risk numbness. We risk burnout. We risk action paralysis. We need more than a social media feed to be the compass for where any of us should put our time, our limited time and energy and money. I think we need a deeper awareness of a deeper reality. We need divine partnership. We need discernment. We, like Simeon and Anna, need a sensitivity to the spirit to know how to live out our legacy in this moment. So, as I hope you can see, I think there are a few things we can learn from these faith and action elders that make this brief appearance in Luke's gospel as we embark on our own Advent season, our own time of watching for and preparing for breakthrough. We have these models that might help point us in the right direction, right? Perhaps the insights about what set them apart can help us get prepared so we don't find ourselves caught as the next year and beyond unfolds without our own lines memorized, finding ourselves in that nightmare scenario, right? As we come to an end, I want to just take a moment to make some practical suggestions on how we might embody these insights in some practical ways during the next three and a half weeks of Advent, during any and any other seasons of self-purification that we're going to undergo in the years to come, okay? So along with these suggestions, there's some specific invitations. That's part of what this flyer you have is about. Specific invitations, things that Haven is putting on that could be ways to engage, but I don't want you to feel like it's uh, prescriptive, like that's the only way to live into these things, right? Only if it's helpful. We hope that you'll take advantage. If there are places you want to move beyond what we've got going on, I encourage you to do that. But here's the invitations I'm going to invite you to into. First, I think we need to make space to connect with our own history and our legacy. Connect with your history, your legacy. What does this look like for you? What ways can you be acquainting yourself more in the history of your faith, perhaps in your ancient texts, as well as the more contemporary history of justice work? that you are in the line of? How can you become more aware of also the needs for action in our time, the ways to participate? What is the legacy you're meant to live into? There's lots of ways to go about this, but I'm just gonna share a couple that we're engaging in as a community or inviting you to. 
We've got this book. I meant to bring up a copy, but it's, uh, I think I have the cover here. Keep Watch With Me. That's an appropriate title for <laughs> considering today's teaching, right? This book is very brief, a couple pages a day, reflections on verses in our sacred texts that come from a variety of voices. And many of these voices are folks doing justice work today and giving their own perspectives on our ancient faith, on the waiting, the preparatory, keeping watch of Advent from their own point of view. There are indigenous voices, there are queer voices, there are incarcerated voices, and more. I encourage you, if nothing else, to take a copy and try reading along. Okay, we have purchased one copy per household. We think we have enough uh, for everyone in Haven. So that's our free little Advent gift to you. Okay, they're at the door. Take a copy per household. Couples can share, etc. Um, we're going to start a Facebook Advent group that I will launch this week. You can keep a, an eye on Facebook for it. For those who want to actually have a place to like process a little bit, like, hey, I like today's reading. What did you think? Or, oh, I hated today's reading. <laughs> it really got to me. What did you think? Um, where we can do that a little bit together, okay? So you can join that if you want to. And then I have these two Activate events that are on the sheet. And one of them is, as it so happens, Dr. Barber, whose story I've been sharing, is coming here uh, a week from Wednesday. There's a big rally. I think there's going to be a lot of people. Um, you may want to look in, you know, Google... Um, the Poor People's Campaign and look for the, the site because they do have a place to RSVP. Um, there's also a Facebook event you can find to RSVP. Um, but it's basically a big mass meeting with a march from City Hall to Glide Memorial and then Glide Memorial is the, is the mass meeting at 7 o'clock. So 5.45 if you want to do the march from, from the Civic Center um, and then or you could just go to Glide at 7. I will be there. Jason, I think, will be there. Um, we would love to have a group of us there, okay? Um, I will name part of why they're doing this tour is he has vision for um, a March on Washington in June, June 2020, and they are mobilizing now um, by going, kind of touring the, the states, a number of states, and California is one of them, and San Francisco is the destination. So uh, that might be even just going to this could be part of opening up your mind to what, what is going on now and what might it mean for you to be involved. Um, and then, of course, we do do a monthly shelter dinner. That's the other event I put as an Activate event. We serve dinner once a month. This is our way, one of our consistent ways of centering the needs of the poor, of recognizing um, that God has come to bring freedom and life and food to all who need it right? And uh, at the end of the year, we like to do, have extra people come, and, and last year we did this caroling with the guys, and they loved it. It, it, was, it went over really well. So I want to invite, even if you're not part of the service, you're welcome to come for the caroling. Um, there, we only need a few people to do the, the, the food prep and service, but we, we could use a larger group at this one to do caroling, and then we, went, we go uh, and do it for the women upstairs as well. So those are some ways you can be engaged. Also, just consider engaging media content that could be helpful in, in this idea of connecting with history and legacy. You could read King's letter for a Birmingham, from a Birmingham jail if you never have. It's online. 
I highly recommend you could see you could read that book I uh, revive us again of Dr. Barber's sermons the film Harriet I have heard is amazing um, just came out and we can share other ideas potentially through the Advent Facebook group second engage in consistent intentional spiritual practices if you do the book if you do the devotionals after the quick reflection there is a very brief prayer and a practice every day if nothing else, that will give you an opportunity to kind of consistently engage in some sort of spiritual practice on a daily basis for the next 24 days. So consider that. For some of us who want something more, um, our friends Connie and Sylvia have been praying every weekday morning for months. Connie is sick today and so not able to be here, but she's one of the people most like an Anna that I've ever met. This woman feels called to pray, and she has been praying for you and this for many, many years, long before I ever met her. Um, and so the three Tuesdays evenings in Advent, they're going to be leading an online Zoom call that allows people to get together and pray together for the activity in the world, for the injustice we see around us, for one another, for Haven, anything along those themes themes will be touched on. So feel free to consider joining in for any of those. There's um, online you can find on our on, on the website, on Facebook, there'll be links to, uh, to how you join that call through Zoom. And then just naming even regularly gathering is an intentional spiritual practice. When we get together for the cookie brunch for the women next week, that is part of our spiritual practice. Every time we are together, that is part of us living out, kind of living into a bigger story with one another, raising our awareness, what is God doing among us? And then finally, I want to invite us to one more invitation for the season, to make space for the mystical. This is the Holy Spirit part. Right? The work of justice needs to be spiritually grounded, not the work that's happening in justice organizations, the work that's happening in political organizations, that is important. It is vital. We need to work alongside our partners, but we as a community of faith name that there is something more that we can bring, that we have to bring, not better, not less, but, but alongside a sensitivity to the divine, a belief in a moral universe, a desire to make space to follow what God's inviting us into. So that's where I want to end today, just making a little space to do that right now, and then we'll transition into worship. Spirit, we invite your presence. Would you come? We thank you for those who've gone before us. We thank you for the Simeons and the Annas that we, whose names we don't even know. We thank you for all who have kept watch and kept faith even in the face of darkness. We thank you for leaders today who are taking their call to participation and breakthrough seriously. May we stand among them as people who watch, as people who self-purify, as people who are committed to participating in whatever ways you would invite us into, 
and breakthrough in our time. We thank you that you are the one who is anointed to preach good news to the poor and bring freedom for the captives. But we need your discernment to know what that means for us today. So would you move in our time? Would you bring us wisdom? And may we see you at work as we do engage this Advent season. Amen.